We're in Luke chapter 10 and looking at verses 21 through 24 this morning. Perhaps in the last couple of days, you've taken time to give thanks. Hopefully it's more than once a year that you take time to make special note of God's blessings. For we are told that His mercies are new every morning. If you were to write down the things that you are to give thanks for, it would probably be composed, a list would be composed of what we might call tangibles. Things that we can see. Things that we can touch. Things you can experience. We are grateful for health and for life and for family and for friends and for freedom and for food. But today I want to bring to your attention something of great importance. I mean, the other things that I just mentioned, they're very good things to be thankful for, necessary things to be thankful for. But I want to bring something that we should be thankful for, and it should be on the highest level of our lists, in the forefront of our minds. Something so important that when Jesus speaks of it, he speaks of it in in an exultant form of joy. Such a a high peak of joy that it's not mentioned the same way anywhere else in the New Testament. That expression of joy that Jesus shows here has no parallel in any of the other Gospels. So it behooves us to find out what it is that brought such great joy to our Lord and Savior. Jesus has sent the 70 out on a mission. They are to go out and tell all that the kingdom of God has come near to them. And the 70, they return with nothing but good news as we read last week. And we'll read again this week in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And with that, we see as we come to verse 21. In that hour, not perhaps immediately after he said what he said in verse 20, but in that space of time that they were together, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. 
all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So the first thing we notice as we come to verse 21 is there's a rejoicing, a rejoicing. It is said that Jesus rejoiced, exalted in his spirit, in spirit. Some translations have in spirit, capital S, and some like the ESV have in the Holy Spirit. And we can see that if you have King James, it just says rejoicing in spirit. If that's the case, then what is being brought to us is the idea that Jesus was rejoicing in his soul. This is the deepest kind of experience of rejoicing that anybody can possibly have because it brought into the picture his whole being. Now the Geneva Bible, which preceded the King James, has he rejoiced in the spirit. And there is an article there in the Greek, so... The is, is the correct translation, I would think. And the New King James has it the same way. He rejoiced in the Spirit. New American Standard and the ESV have that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Which, again, it's all saying the same thing as far as that goes. That if we go with this kind of translation, then we understand it was a triune joy. That it involved Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this verse. For we see that at that time, Jesus, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, I thank thee, O Father. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we read that Jesus in Isaiah was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. We read that Jesus wept. But here in this passage and in the parallel one in Matthew, this is the only place that we see such an expression of joy, of intensity of joy. Now when uh, the centurion said to Jesus, Uh, When Jesus said, I will come and heal your servant, he said, oh, no, you don't have to come to my house uh, because I'm a man under authority. I understand you. You say, I say to one, go, and he goes, and the other come and come. So I know that you have that that power. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at what, what the centurion said and said, I have not found such faith in all Israel. So... That was a sign of joy. That was a time of joy being expressed there by Jesus, but not the level that we're seeing here uh, in this particular passage, the intensity of joy. Perhaps there were other times, but they're not recorded for us. But this one is the only one recorded. 
Now, in light of this, wouldn't you wish to see what it was that brought such joy to our Savior's soul? Well, he immediately breaks forth in thanksgiving. And what causes such an outpour of thanksgiving? Well, when Jesus begins to speak here, he says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that these have returned from their mission with such great news. That's not what he's thankful for. I mean, certainly he is thankful that they have come back and they have done the things that they were supposed to do and they had met with such great success. But what Jesus is excited about and what he gives such great thanks about is something that will surprise most people, maybe even yourself. You know, it's easy to think he was full of joy with the report of the 70, but but know what he said in verse 18. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. They're talking about a, a reign of darkness that the light had begun to penetrate. The light broke through the thick soul, destroying darkness of deceit and deception. So I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now this fuels his joy, but there is something else. And we see it in, first, who he gives thanks to, and then secondly, what he gives thanks for. First, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, And so as he begins that thanksgiving, he speaks first the sovereign rule of God who has power over everything, even the dust on Mars. The surface of Mars looks like the surface of Mars because that's the way God created it. And all the other things that the microscopes pick up and And telescopes pick up and people say, oh, wow, isn't this marvelous? And maybe they're, I noticed on Mars, you know, there's in there there's little water droplets. And if there's water droplets, they could have been life. And there's all kinds of excitement that there, there might be some form of life somewhere else. Well, if there was, God created it. It did not create itself. And so he says, Lord of heaven and earth. When he says heaven and earth, there's nothing left. That covers everything. The sovereign rule of God. Now in this, there's a thanksgiving not only for God's sovereignty. And remember, as Jesus is saying this, Whenever he speaks like this, he's not speaking merely for himself, but he's speaking for the benefit of those who are around him. So they will know how to address their heavenly father and why they address him that way. So his teaching is for the people by his words and how he addresses the father. That's who he addresses. But secondly, what does he What is it that he gives thanks for? I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that thou hast hid, hidden these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes, even so for so it seemed good in thy sight. I thank thee, O Lord, O Father, that thou hast hidden. Oh, wow. That takes people to a whole new realm of God. He's thanking the Father for hiding the truth. The truth of the kingdom, the need of salvation and the means of salvation. God has hidden this from a certain group of people. Now what is often missed here is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 29 and verse 14, Isaiah 29, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. God is speaking, and he says he's going to do a, a marvelous work. In fact, he repeats it twice, and a wonder among the people, even a marvelous work in a wonder, he says. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So notice who Jesus said the great truths will be hidden from the wise and the prudent. Now, at first, that sounds like a group you want to be part of. What group are you with? Well, I'm with the dumb and ignorant. <laughs> I'd much rather have the t-shirt that says, I'm with the wise and prudent. Not with the finger pointing and I'm with stupid from the person standing next to you in their t-shirt. That finger point. So it seemed a, a good group to be in. But these referred to here as wise and prudent are wise and prudent in the world's esteem and wisdom. We hear the world's wise men say things like, uh, well, we... We must have reason. We can not go by faith. We must go by reason. You see, reason trumps faith in their estimation. But interestingly, when they make statements like that, they, they ignore the definition of faith. They separate reason from faith, and the definition of faith includes reason. 
So they're trying to separate in their definition or what they're saying something that, that's never been separated before. Gee, woo. <laughs> when has that ever happened before? Faith does not exclude reason, but it includes it. It is the firm belief and trust in the authority and truthfulness of another. Now, how do you get to that point? Only by reason. If you have faith in somebody, it's because you have watched what they do, how they do it, and what their life is like, and therefore you reasonably can put some trust into that person. And that proceeds into the idea of what is faith in Christ in the first place? It is trust in him. Trust in who he is and what he has done. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we see this spelled out clearly. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 1 has in it the perfect message for us for Christmas and the perfect message for us for Easter and even the perfect message for us for the resurrection of the dead. It's spelled out for us clearly when we begin at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Notice verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. There you go, the wise and the prudent. Same things mentioned in Isaiah. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? One of the foremost atheists, which seems like kind of a contradiction of terms, a foremost atheist, when asked how this world began, how the earth came into being, said it was because of aliens. <laughs> Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, there's the wise and the prudent, and then in verse 20, it says, those who are of the world have the world's wisdom. They look on uh, the church with disdain. This is what we were getting at in the psalm. 
And God has the last laugh when it comes to that. In chapter 3, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. They are empty. Now let's be clear here, as we look at this, I want us to see that the wise and prudent of the world have nothing to do with race or nationality, nor does it have to do with rich or poor. There are many worldly philosophers who are not rich. But as long as anyone feels they have the answer and that religion is some sort of crutch, then they are quite blind to the truth. Back in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus. Why he speaks in parables. Verse 10 of Matthew 13, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Verse 11. He answered and said unto them, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. It's not given. And so in verse 13 says, Therefore I uh, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. It's grown hard, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. And interesting, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The Lord continues to hide these things from them who are so full of their self-wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And so what God does is just leave them to themselves. It's a judicial kind of hardening. It's not like God is zapping them and saying, I'm going to make your heart hard as a brick. It already is. And he just leaves it that way. But while he has hidden, he is also revealed. And who is it that he has revealed his truth to? And he says in Luke chapter 10, it's been revealed unto babes. Unto babes. Now, immediately our minds think of little children, little 
infants or things like that, but that's not what he's getting at. Psalm 25 and 11 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Who are the babes? Well, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 28, 29, in that prophecy that we were reading, we'll find that we get a fairly good definition at that point. Because after it being hid from some, the truth, in chapter 19 and verse 18, in that day the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind see it out of obscurity and out of darkness. And the meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Those are, it gives us a picture of, of the type of person that are considered babes. When the world can look at it and say, they're kind of simpletons, they're just kind of simplistic But God reveals the truth. And then 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26, Paul puts it this way. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound those that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord it's clear what we need to get at and understand here this truth this revelation of God no one deserves and no one is more naturally discerning that's not, that's not the way it is. There's no one who deserves to know these things. And there's no one who naturally can discern them. But isn't it interesting how we see that in so many cases, the church in the world, and especially in the United States, loves celebrity. Oh, man, did you hear <coughs> so-and-so has said that they are Christian? We need to get them to come in and give their testimony. Because, of course, the testimony of an actor has got to be better than your testimony. It's the exact opposite of how God works. Oh, these celebrities. What great ornaments they would be. But again, 
how counter it is to the way God works for Here we see God has the whole world at his command. All people. And out of that mass of humanity, what does he choose? What does he choose? He chooses rather to select particular people to bring to himself that more often he chooses from the common people, the obscure people, instead of the highly esteemed and worldly praised. And this adds to the hardness of the blind. For the most part, our leadership in Raleigh, our leadership in Washington, D.C., looks upon Christianity as a problem. And further and further, it's becoming more and more of a problem because in order to push their radical agenda of, especially when it comes to gender, Christians are in the way. And if we could just get those poor imbeciles to see that they're in the way. There's somebody who's come out with a movie uh, that says, well, you know, the problem is that in 1946, for the first time in an English translation of Scripture, the word homosexual came up. Up to that point, the word was never used. All right, so what were they referred to before 1946 in the English Bible? Sodomites. Abusers of men with men. People who leave the natural use of the body. Perhaps it was more colorful. And if they want, instead, we'll cross out homosexuals and we'll say sodomites. Well, that, that'll make it happy. But what a crazy kind of premise to try to prove that y'all are so stupid that you don't know that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. It's that translation that gets in the way if you would just see that we're supposed to embrace. Embrace it. Uh, Pretending to be wise they became fools. But they look and they say, you know, those people who believe, those conservative Christians, they're not very bright. I don't know how we're going to reach them. It's all right, God already has. It seemed good in thy sight, Jesus said, that the Father would do such things. What we're seeing here is the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, a doctrine that many people are not comfortable with. And there are cries of, that's not fair, and everybody deserves a chance. But beloved, anytime somebody tries to put an obligation on God, that he deserve, these people deserve this, so he should do this because they are deserving in some way. 
then they take away grace out of the, the whole equation. Because now salvation becomes a debt that God has to pay and he owes to people. And we have to remember this. If God saved nobody, he would still be a just God. If he saved nobody, you see, more and more people in our world today think, well, you know, man is basically good. Man's basically good, so he can do good things unless he drives an internal combustion engine. Well, then he's naturally depraved because he should be in an EV. But the truth is, for the most part, and it's becoming more and more so, people believe that man's basically good. And that's counter to what Scripture teaches us. So we get into special revelation here. In verse 22, Jesus makes it clear, all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, who the Son is, but the Father, and who the Father is, but the Son. There's no one who in of themselves has a true understanding and concept of God. This has to be supernaturally given. Now, there is a branch of natural theology. There is something that you can look at creation and get some kind of idea about God, but not a specific truth about God. But also, as we look at this here, also is the majesty of Jesus. He is on the same level with the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. See, they've been together from all eternity. And it shows the equality of the Father with the Son. Who is it that comes to know the Father? Those to whom the Son wills to reveal. No one knows who the Father is but the Son and those to whom the Son reveals the Father too. And then verse 23 and 24, and he turned to his disciples privately. Blessed are your eyes, are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. To prove the point through this whole thing, Jesus turns to his disciples, he speaks to them privately. Blessed are the eyes, your eyes. And blessed means you've gotten something beyond your own natural ability to receive. It had to come to you from God. If it was part of your own ability, it wouldn't be a blessing anymore. It'd be just something you accomplished. It would turn from blessing to accomplishment. But now as you look at verse 24... He says, prophets and kings have desired to see and hear the things that you see and hear. You understand what he's saying here? Do you see what he's telling us? If you're a believer, you actually have more revealed to you than Isaiah had revealed to him. 
And Jeremiah had revealed to him. And any of the prophets had revealed to them. And more even than King David had revealed to him. Or Hezekiah. Or even Solomon. They would love to see the complete picture that we see today. Or at least in their time. Today, now they, they do see. But in their day and time, they would have loved to see with the clarity that we're able to see. We stand in an even better place than them. See, he's not referring to false prophets and wicked kings. So as I finish, let me give you five things, five, five things from this passage, five grounds of thanksgiving. The first would be this. The sovereignty of God should rejoice your soul and cause you to give thanks. An all-powerful God who's in full control is also an all-holy God. And there's no evil or shadow of turning with him. And that should be a great cause for thanksgiving. No matter what we see out there, we know God is still in control and working out his plan. Second, that while God hides the truth from some, that is to let them stay self-contented in their blindness, if you're a believer, it's because God chose to reveal the truth to you. Why? Why you? I don't know. Why me? <laughs> I have no idea. It's only out of his sovereign grace and love. <clears throat> and that is worthy of thanksgiving. Thirdly, Jesus is the only full and pure source of revelation of the Father. And I, I'm so thankful that we need only one source. And that source is also called the Word. Fourthly, if you have the truth of God, then by necessity you have the Holy Spirit. For apart from the Holy Spirit, you would not have any of the truth of God residing with you. And then fifthly, last, till then, if you have any truth about God, it is because God has revealed it to you. Revealed it to you by his appointed means, the reading proclamation, the teaching of his word. But it's revelation from God. If you got it from the Bible, you get it from God. If it's truth that you've come to know, I mean, we've seen some people get some wacky doctrines from the Bible, from their reading of the Bible, but not from the Bible itself. It's from their reading of it. We remember so often I refer to this because it proves the point so clearly. Jesus asked the people, his disciples, who do the people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say the prophet, some say John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? Simon says, Simon Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed these things to you, but my Father in heaven. So you see the definition of blessed. Peter gets information and truth 
not from his own observation, but that God gave him that truth. Otherwise, Jesus would have said to him, well, you are achieving very well, Peter. But instead he says, blessed. And my friends, what greater word can stir us to thanksgiving than the fact that we have been blessed by God to know who he is and to be saved by his grace. Let's stand together.